I'm Barb Stengel, the host of Chasing Bailey. What follows is a bonus episode, not part of our regular schedule, but a conversation that nonetheless deepens and expands the ideas about education that ground the podcast. In mid-December, Bloomsbury Press published Responsibility, a book I authored for their Philosophy of Education in Practice series. To help launch the book, I decided to sit down with four colleagues and invite them to make sense of what I've said and done. As you'll hear, this book continues the Bailey story. The main point is that responsibility, understood prospectively as the capacity to respond to complicated situations, can serve as a grounding concept for all our educational efforts as students, as teachers, and as leaders and policymakers. Bailey figures prominently in the argument as an exemplar of what responsibility looks like when you look ahead toward constructive action rather than backward toward blame and punishment. As I said, responsibility is now available on the Bloomsbury website, as well as through bookchop.org, Amazon, and other booksellers. If you snag a paperback copy, the cost is low, about $20. But you don't have to buy the book to appreciate the conversation that my four guests bring to the topic of responsibility in education. Before we begin, I, I want to say something about why I invited these four people. When I was the director of teacher education at Vanderbilt University, we had a, a, a motto in our secondary education program that was based on a line from a Zach Brown band song. And we were in Nashville, country music. But the line was, keep your heart above your head and your eyes wide open. And I invited these four people because they are people who do exactly that. They love ideas, their own ideas, and the ideas that they work with students, kids of any age. But they also keep their hearts above their heads and their eyes wide open. So to the four of you, welcome and thank you. I'd like to start with you, Seamus, and ask you to introduce yourself. Well, first of all, thank you, Barb, for uh, the opportunity to sit down and talk to you about your book. Um, my name is Seamus Mulryan. I'm an assistant professor of education at Ursinus College. I, I actually started out as a physics major as an undergraduate and got into education um, through Teach for America. I took what I thought was going to be a short break from my pursuits in physics to um, do Teach for America, and I started as a high school physics teacher. And um, as I was involved in teaching, I became more and more interested in some of the fundamental questions in education and decided to pursue graduate degrees in uh, philosophy of education and ended with a doctorate in uh, educational policy studies from the University of Illinois. Um, And I've known Barb for quite some time, so it's a pleasure to reconnect with you, Barb. Um, What I really liked about this was that, you know, for me, especially teaching undergraduates, and I could see even as an educator, how the importance of this book extends beyond just the undergraduate classrooms. I'm always looking for books for my undergraduates where they're able to engage in in rich philosophical thinking that also has a very clear direct applicability. Um, A lot of my students will complain when we're studying educational theory and philosophy that um, it's, it's too abstracted, 
right? Um, but then there's also too many books that I'm trying to teach my students who are educational studies majors. They're not all teacher prep students. So some of them are just interested in studying education um, as an end in itself. And there's a lot of books that are really great for um, just teacher prep, but don't necessarily demand too much in terms of their intellectual thinking. And even in our teacher education program, we expect our students to engage in some rigorous thinking. So I like this book because A, I don't, I probably didn't tell you this bar, but it's already slated for my uh, ethics and moral education class <laughs> next semester. So I'll let you know how that goes. Thank you. Um, so it's on the syllabus for next semester. Um, Precisely because of that. So that's what I really like about it. There just aren't enough books out there um, that do that. And I think that too much of the discourse in education is, is sloganeering. Um, there's not a lot of um, deep thinking that goes on in a lot of educational discourse. And I'm always I'm always in favor of anything that tries to push our discourse in education um, towards more reflective thinking about what's going on uh, in the schools themselves. So I, I hope that gives you <laughs> enough. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Seamus. Jesse. Thank you, Barb, for including me on this panel. This is really, really awesome. I feel quite honored. Um, so I'm Ochezi Joseph, and uh, K-12 has primarily been my background in my world. Um, but uh, after leaving K-12, as almost every position, teacher, principal, staff development teacher, re reading specialist, all of those good things. Uh, then I came into the higher education space um, at Vanderbilt where I had the pleasure of working and meeting Barb. And uh, since leaving Vanderbilt, I went to teach at my first HBCU and was a visiting professor at Howard University. Uh, left Howard University and now I am the director of the teacher education program, undergraduate program at American University. So that's my background. And, um, but I guess the one thing that really struck me, well, two things really. Um, one thing that our students, especially our undergrads want, they want practicalness. <laughs> they want to talk about things that are practical and that your book, Barb, is practical. It makes sense. It's what we're living. And um, right now, with all the politics that are disrupting the real point of education and the real point of what's best for our students, um, this book kind of brings us back. And it makes me think of Bettina Love and you know her whole idea of um, of of fighting and her whole idea of saying what is important <laughs> um, and that whole idea of what is responsible, what does that look like? So taking away all of the politics that um, are there to disrupt the real work, bringing us focus and back on what is our response ability, how mm -hmm. are we to respond to all of this? So Thank you for having me. You, you folks are making me feel good. I like this. Haley, your turn. Um, but I'm Haley Perkins. I was actually a Vanderbilt resident in Nashville um, right after Bailey closed um, at a school that had modeled their efforts off the Bailey approach. And then after that, I've taught secondary um, social studies in California public schools for a number of years. But I'm now in the UK at the University of Cambridge 
um, working on a PhD. And right now I'm particularly interested in questions about pedagogical approaches that can effectively meet both the ecological and technological challenges that our world and our kids face right now, um, which has specifically led me to really lean into philosophies of relation um, and how we relate to things, nature, technology, et cetera. And then in turn, what our responsibilities are as educators with regard to those two pretty monumental events, ecological breakdown slash climate change and advancement of technology into every facet of our lives, including AI. So that's where I'm, that's where I am now. Um, in terms of the book, I really loved reading the book from both as a, a teacher, a former teacher in Nashville in particular, um, but also as a student slash teacher now and an early career researcher, um, especially with engaging with this concept of responsibility around different concepts of education. Um, some of my comments were all, have already been taken up, um, but there were two things I think that really stood out. The first was, Barb, the way that you frame responsibility, I think the capacity to respond fruitfully and fittingly to challenging situations based on who we are and how we belong to a group. I think that's so relevant to not only what was really happening on the ground at Bailey, but it's also a way to understand the education project in literally every other context. Um, and so for me specifically, even though you didn't necessarily mention or focus on, for example, climate change or ecological issues um, and how we as educators can or should be responding to that, I appreciated that I could still glean, at least by the end of the book, that the first step in responsibility in any context is through deep relation. Um, and these are concepts that I've been toggling around in my head as an early career re researcher and have really been struggling with, with and you really grounded them in a useful way, which brings me to my second point, which is that by grounding the concept in a real school with real people and real kids and real teachers, um, it really keeps the, the concepts alive and embodied. And I think as <clears throat> Seamus, mentioned, you know, it's so easy with philosophical concepts to get stuck in the theoretical and kind of get so heady with it um, and forget that there's a real world with real kids and real teachers doing real things. And I think this approach, especially with such a focus on terms that you kept coming back to, like loving regard, careful attention, engrossment, I think it really speaks to the embodied nature of the text and helped me as a person who's deep in philosophical research right now, it helps me get out of my head and bring and center um, the kids in the classroom and the real world. I think as uh, the kids say these days, tell me you're a feminist without telling me you're a feminist. <laughs> I think that's it. I think it's reminding me that we're in living bodies. Um, yeah. That's great. Michal, you're my newest friend. Jump in here. Yes. Hi, I'm, thank you for having me, Barbara. It's uh, really wonderful to be here. Uh, my name is Michal Wojcik, and we met really recently, as you said, but we met through a shared passion and admiration for the philosophy of John Dewey, because I am also a philosopher. I am currently a Government of Ireland postdoctoral fellow at Dublin University, and my work deals with technologies and how they change our knowledge of the world, our knowledge of themselves, of ourselves and also our, our behavior. And I'm currently studying how the use of AI is going to impact primary and secondary education and the, well, the ethical issues that I'm going to arise with it. 
So in many ways, this book was highly topical to my research, and I'm definitely going to be using it. But I think the best way I can, the best thing I can say about it is that it's very short and to the point, which is a quality that is very undervalued in philosophy books. Uh, I think we should be writing shorter texts that just deliver the message like, like this one does. And more specifically, I really enjoyed the interplay between your concept of responsibility and the case study that you're using to illustrate the concept. Because on the one hand, it's for much, so much easier to understand what you mean by specific terms when you refer them to specific practices that uh, teachers in, in, in Bailey enacted. But also it shows that those it's not about those specific practices, but rather the underlying ideas about what teaching is and how to treat students that makes them respond well to the situation at hand. It's not that, well, now any school can just start to call their students scholars and then they will suddenly see a 17% increase in test scores, but rather it points to a deeper yeah. understanding of education and relationships that should, should be existing between different people involved in education. And I think this is a very nice way to jump from one to the other and see how they interrelate. We had agreed that everybody would say something encouraging about the project at the beginning, and then they would dig into the questions that came up as they were reading. Seamus was ready with a long list. I think a lot of my questions, maybe I'll just kind of talk thematically about what a lot of my questions are pointed towards, and you can riff off it for a little bit. It has to do really because I'm because I'm I, you know, I'm in a, an undergraduate education program and we have a teacher education certification program. We have an ed studies program. Um, and just, we have a lot of educators here and I was, a, you know, a, a K-12 educator for some time. And I also, I forgot to mention, I taught in a, an MED program for ed leadership and for students who are getting their MEDs. And I'm wondering like the role that responsibility <laughs> What demands this new conceptualization of responsibility places on us as teacher educators and educate and educators of future educational leaders? Like how it is that, like in a way, when, when you frame the story of Bailey, it's it's like it organically happened. You know, you saw this responsibility happened. And I started to wonder, like, where did these people get this sense? of responsibility, how did that happen? And, you know, it's a question in virtue ethics generally or in the tradition of ethics generally is can goodness be taught? You know, can we actually teach this in some way and how do we teach that? And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts along the way as you were writing this and reflecting upon the people that you saw enacting this in Bailey, where they, where they got that from? Like how and what possibilities there are for us as teacher educators and educators of future school leaders for developing this kind of um, disposition. And one, one, one particular instance I had in my question was thinking about the kind of action research that a lot of EDD students will do. That is students who are getting a doctorate in education where they look at the school environment, they see a particular issue or problem, they implement an intervention, they get the feedback from the environment about whether or not that intervention worked and in what ways and what it didn't. And I was wondering, like, is the is does that have any potential for developing responsibility, or is that too much part of the kind of rule based, um, systematic 
uh, imposition of bureaucracy that gets imposed upon these school systems. I hope that makes sense. And, you know, it does, Seamus, and it's it's a really good question. It's a it's at the heart of this. I mean, the, the question is, OK, I propose an idea of responsibility, but ideas don't make things happen. And one of the things, and please jump in if anybody wants to follow up, but one of the things that I was acutely aware of working at Bailey, but also working since then on an online course in an EDD program at Vanderbilt called Responsible Leadership. And it's very much, it's right up the alley of what you're talking about here. What we didn't go into Bailey with a concept of responsibility. It wasn't a driving idea, but we did go into the Bailey project. And I, I link myself to those folks. I wasn't there every day. I was only there one day a week. Um, we did go in thinking about kids and education. And one of the reasons we could do that, and I hope this comes through in the book a little bit, was because Bailey was forgotten. It was failing. Nobody thought it had a shot. They hired a somebody who had never been a principal before. I honestly think maybe they thought it would fail. Not everybody. I, I do know why they hired this, this guy, Christian Sawyer, who turned out to be wonderful. But he wasn't wonderful from the get-go. And none of the teachers, they're all good, but they're not all intrinsically better than all the other teachers I have known in other places. But somehow, over time, because they focused on education and kids, they were able to do what they know they should do and not get caught. Now, they had the advantage of a lot of people not paying attention to them. And, you know, that's that is the reality of our school system over the last two, three, four decades, is that the surveillance of principals and teachers is almost intolerable. Michal, and perhaps Haley, you can say whether that's the truth in, in Europe right now. But um, so teachers know what to do. My experience is that teachers aren't at a loss for how to really connect to kids and expand relations. They know how to do it. So in answer to your question, I think this developed, you know, I probably had some ideas about all of this, ideas about it. Most of the people didn't, but they knew what their responsibility was to kids. And so we began to develop a language that let us realize what we were doing. And this, I often say, you know, all I do is feed people lines. I don't tell them anything they don't already know, but I, I offer a way to think about what they're doing. So I try to take that and put it into this course called Responsible Leadership. And I do think, Seamus, that very specifically, the kind of projects, they're not research dissertations, but the kinds of projects that MED students and EDD students do does have the potential. And I would shout out my colleague and Ochezi's former colleague, Michael Neal, who works in this program at Vanderbilt and who has worked very hard to make their capstone project exactly that kind of thing and to bring this idea of responsible leadership um, to bear on the work that they're doing. So that's my best answer there. You want to follow up or should we go on to somebody else? No, that's great. I'll, I'll just say one thing really quickly that um, something you said reminded me of. I remember as a, as a graduate student 
been reading. I don't even, I don't even remember what it was who he was reading, but I remember talking to one of my professors and saying, oh gosh, you know, this idea has been, it's like, I've known it's there, but I didn't have the language for it. And so I think that's the, that's another thing I didn't say in the beginning, but one of the benefits of a book like this is that a lot of times there's like an intuition that we as teachers or um, educational leaders have, but those intuitions get lost, um, A, because they're not valued, unfortunately, but also because there isn't really a language for it. Like we haven't fully developed a language for it. And so another benefit of this book, like you say, is actually giving a language for it. Like, oh, there's this thing, it's called responsibility in this way. And we can actually use this concept as um, what's the word I want to look for, like a regulating or moderating ideal for measuring our actions against. So I will say that it was a kind of virtuous cycle that as we, you know, as we did some of the things that were really focused on basic issues of education and kids that and kind of got a language and everybody was reinforcing each other. So they're working in teams. They're taking responsibility for virtually every aspect of kids' experience. And then it was like, oh, look at us. Look what we're doing. And so it became a school. The institution, the, the organization supported this. So there really was a virtuous cycle being developed. Chesie, you want to start with a question? Yeah, that was kind of along the lines of what I was thinking, what Seamus said, because, um, you know, you mentioned how it was all about, or mostly about relations and building relations less than it was about performance and results. Mm -hmm. And so in, even in our teacher prep programs, when we talk about the, you know, how schools are just all so different um, and taking the pragmatic approach, and you mentioned this in the book, you asked the question, or what constructive actions do we need to take now, right? So how do we assess our responsibility to identify those constructive actions that need to happen right now? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I think it's a habit. I know Seamus, you have some questions about habit and habituation, but I actually think this is a habit of mind and this is very Dewey. And of course, this is a habit of mind that we can, um, that we can develop in leaders and in educators, but we have to free up what we're asking them to do. We have to let them exercise their own capacity to respond sometimes. And this is one of my favorite parts about Bailey. They embraced making mistakes. There's a, I don't know if you remember the little bit where somebody says we can make mistakes and we can fix them. It's just not a problem. Um, and I think that's, um, in the book I did with Liz Self on anti-oppressive pedagogy, we were talking about simulations that can develop the capacity for understanding. And we talked a lot about um, the the notion of being, Gadamer's notion of being pulled up short. And one of the things that we said there, and I think this happened at Bailey, was they got in the habit of being pulled up short and being able to say, ha, huh, look what just happened. Like I had no idea. I didn't see this coming and not view that as a threat, view that as an opportunity. And I think this is, Chesie, what you're pointing to, it's this habit of mind. Um, and, and that's the habit of mind that keeps other habits from becoming habituated, Seamus. That's the one that we really have to develop 
um, this this habit of responding and understanding that we are always responding. And sometimes our hab habitual and or traditional ways of acting are the right ones. And sometimes they're not. And can we tell the difference and not get all weirded out when we get pulled up short? Yeah, I have a question about that or maybe a little bit of a follow-up. So about this habit of mind that you're talking about with regard to responsibility. So I was a resident at a school that was modeled off of Bailey and it was not nearly as successful as the Bailey model was, um, but there were moments of success. Um, and then in the school that I worked at afterwards, I saw again, many teachers ex modeling that habit of mind and just naturally coming together, you know, this, this permeability of classrooms goes away but it's really hard to get out of those classrooms, at least in secondary education of single teacher, single subject, single, single classroom. And I'm wondering where you see the bottleneck there. Like, do you see there at being a core actionable switch that we could flip, you know, that might be a good actionable starting point if we assume good teachers already know how to do this and already want to do this, but they're constrained by a, a system that doesn't support it. Where does that constraint start? I mean, it's an, an impossible question to answer, but I would love you to try. Yeah. Um, and everybody's nodding wildly here. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously it's not a bottleneck. There's not a, a switch we can flip. Um, nonetheless, I do think, again, the story of Bailey is illustrative in this sense. The first year was not like all of a sudden we did this right. Um, and it was, it really took one good idea. And the good idea was teaming, really team, teach, putting teachers together in teams, fifth grade team, sixth grade team, seventh grade team, eighth grade team, um, and, and honoring teacher leaders among those groups. That was, I think, the thing that, that changed the possibilities. Now, some of this starts with a good principle and, and not good in the sense of he knows everything to do because he didn't, but good in the sense of, I don't know everything to do. So I'm going to let people who are closer to the action make some substantive and consequential decisions. And I'm gonna stand by them. And of course, the teachers who, as we, I said, and you're saying, they kind of know what to do. Well, my God, somebody gives them that space in the second year at Bailey to work as teams. And it wasn't all glorious. Please don't get me wrong. But it was good enough, often enough, that it started that virtual cycle I was talking about. So I think that... Um, and it would be different in different kinds of schools. High schools would be, this was a middle school. It's easier to do teaming in a middle level, even than it is in elementary and certainly than it is in secondary. And yet I think there are things that people could do, um, affinity groups of teachers, departments, that you begin to work with a coalition of the willing. I'm coaching a principal right now and, you know, trying to, she's upset because everybody isn't doing everything she, you know, she hopes for, or they're not all happy. And I just started laughing. She just started. And I said, what did you think was going to happen? This is all completely predictable. Three, four months into it, into a new principal, you're getting the resistance 
that they have to offer while they test you, while they find out. And Chesi, you can probably speak to this because you've been a principal in different situations. You know, there's going to be resistance. Everybody's not going to love you. But eventually, once they begin to understand that, A, you will let them educate children, not just do what you're told, but educate children, and B, that you will stand by them when they make their efforts to educate children, over time, they grow into this and they trust you and they trust each other. And, you know, I'm not, we're not talking about utopia here, but I think we could be a darn sight better than we are if we, if principals were able to make these decisions and teachers were able to take responsibility for their own actions. I would like to follow up on that, actually, because yeah, Haley, Haley mentioned constraints, and this is what, like, what I'd like to build on, because the Bailey examples shows very well how teachers are able to enact this responsibility if given the opportunities to do so, but they're given those opportunities precisely because Bailey was failing in, in, in so, many, so many regards, and you could even say that there was no, no constraints because it was also incentivized that the school would fail and be closed down. But the, the question then is, how do we scale up this approach? How do we how do we ensure that, you know, at the policy level, at the district level, state level, national level, uh, decision makers are, are, are ready to allow people to enact this res responsibility and not just prescribe ready-made solutions like, well, just enact some of the science responsibility unreflectively, call your students scholars, team up without ever thinking about what teaming up would mean in this specific context, and you will achieve the results because this is a likely outcome if we go that direction, I think, without actually building it from, a, from, a, from the ground up. And I think this is the biggest limitation of, of this approach for responsibility. It places so much emphasis on the individual's to respond to the situation. At the same time, they're always constrained by the circumstances and the system in which they have to function, which might not necessarily want them or enable them to enact this responsibility. Okay, now you are asking so many different questions there, Michal. And I gotta tell you that I would argue that the, the question of scalability is absolutely positively the wrong question. And so my answer to, policymakers. And I am, you know, I am offering this responsibility as a design principle for policymakers. Um, and I am completely aware of the reality of the politics. The truth is that policymakers in Europe, in the Western world generally, and probably everywhere else, they are not interested. I would argue some of them aren't interested in education. They are oh, interested yeah. in, you know, I'm going to, they're interested in the economic value of children. And I have so little interest in the economic value of children as an end in itself. I'm not saying that there is no economic value in all citizens at some point. But if we're if we're really interested in education, then economic value cannot be our guiding principle. Now, so I I think you're right about this. And one of the reasons that I've continued to do the podcast that this episode is part of is that I'm trying to highlight the voices of teachers. I'm trying to say that if we would listen to teachers, we would have a prayer. Because empirically, Michal, I would argue that it could not be worse. 
I would say that what we have created, I don't know, you want to follow up? What do you think? Do you agree with me? So, uh, my question is basically, how do we convince the decision makers that this is exactly what they okay. want? Just let the teachers do what they're supposed to be doing. Well, I don't have any idea. I mean, I'm, I do my own little thing with as many decision makers, local superintendents, you know, principals, um, my local state representatives, I sort of do my bit with them whenever I can. And I think if more educators, I mean, one of the reasons I think I wrote this book in this way is that I do think if more educators spoke this way and, and simply that we didn't sit back and be sheep and take what's going on, I think that we would have a prayer that they might have to listen. And I don't have a good answer. You, your question is excellent. Seamus, jump in because I know you have something to say on this. Yeah, I just want to say something really quickly is that I think that that at a policy level, I mean, I don't think there's a really simple solution, but this does fit within the sphere of civic education, which would, you know, a lot of the, the a lot of the direction that Dewey and people take is in that direction, right? That there's something about democracy as a way of living, responsibility as important. And so while, while we've kind of given up on civic education as a priority, at least in the United States, because we are really concerned about economics and just the math and literacy and we're jettisoning the arts and all of that kind of thing. I think that's one direction in which we can go with this is say, you know, we, and we do have a problem in the United States with civic discourse and with civic responsibility. So I think it is a direction, rhetorically at least, that we could take in the United mm -hmm. States among educational policy circles to say, because one of the questions as I had, Barb, as you, you might remember is, you know, what we see this responsibility in the school and, you know, from, from, a, from a Dewey perspective, there really shouldn't be much of a distinction between what's outside the school and what's inside the school, right? And so we see responsibility as important as a, a, a virtue, if I can call it that, in the school or habit, we'll call it a habit of mine. Um, then what about the life? What value does that have for life after school? And of course, I think I know what some of those answers are, right? We want, we don't just, responsibility isn't just really important for educational goals of, of uh, passing the PSSAs and whatever No Child Left Behind apparatus is still like left in its dilapidated form, but, but, uh, but responsibility is important generally. Um, for the public. And so I think that's a direction, at least rhetorically, that we might try to take in policy circles to push the idea forward and at least make it a little bit more acceptable as a as a goal. Maybe it's not the, the primary goal in the beginning, but it becomes an important goal. Just an idea. Michal, did I answer your question? Can you, you want to come back on that? Well, it's, it, I really hoped you would because it's a question I struggle with myself. So I was hoping you'd offer me some of the, some of the wisdom that would solve a lot of the, the solutions, but uh, yeah, there's there's no good no good answer. And I think what what, you, what your book also shows is that this kind of responsibility requires us to reject ready-made solutions. And I, I especially looked at some of the passages about technology and data. You don't really highlight those, but you have them in the book, where the teachers had to reject the most obvious solution and the default content offered by, by a specific program or by, or, or by data and actually look beyond that and see what would fit in the specific circumstances. So my, my issue is with it, I, I obviously agree that this is the right approach, but it also shows that this radical responsibility that, that, that you propose goes completely opposite to a lot of the tendencies we see in, in, in current ed tech, in current education policy, et cetera. So, so in this sense, 
it is a massive challenge that mm -hmm. bears fruit, but convincing, you know, relevant decision makers to, to adopt that, it's going to be a struggle or the worthwhile struggle. You know, I'm, I'm not naive. I, I call myself a critical pragmatist. I'm like willing to acknowledge all the things that we're up against, but I'm also pretty convinced that educators have more capacity for response and more power than they have claimed that the the policy practice practices of the last 20 to 30 years have squeezed the life out of educators desire i often talk about um lauren berlant's idea of cruel optimism People, including your students now, Chesie, for instance, and yours, Seamus, they become teachers because they want to educate, really educate children. And they go into teaching and find out that education is the one thing they can't do as they take on the job of teacher, that they are doing babysitting, they are doing test prep, they are doing other things, but not really education. And if we can awaken that, and I understand the limits of one little voice in one little book, but if we can awaken that, and I think we can, at least in small places, one group at a time, um, because it can't, it's not one individual at a time, you know, it's, it's people and their posse that can do this, that I, I think there's a reason to try to do it. And that's the pragmatist in me, okay? There are things I can do. I'm going to do what I can do. And this conversation with you and this book, these are these are things I can do. No, I, I totally agree. And I'm thinking about so many things and thinking about my students in our undergrad program right now at American University. Um, and my students are predominantly white and they want to teach. And I've made a very intentional moves within our program to get them in schools in front of children earlier than student teaching, right? Because, um, because we put them in urban schools, we put them on east of the Anacostia River in mm -hmm. D and it's it's a it's a shock. <laughs> and thinking about Bailey and just setting the scene of Nashville, you know. And you even mentioned that uh, it's been a place of racial struggle, 50s, 60s till present day. Um, and of course, I know that all too well what that whole thing looks like. And when we think about training teachers to go into schools, especially predominantly black and brown schools to work with students and the politics involved with the racial struggle all of that, I mean, it's it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with. And at the same time, we want to be abolitionists, right? <laughs> um, so it is the question of, again, what is our responsibility to students? How do we best serve them? And um, that's something I grapple with. And I, I, I want you to pull more out from there. Um, Chesie, to what, to what you were saying, I think that having the having the space to, to be aware of any of those kinds of issues that are in the school, that cultivating a kind of responsibility allows, it compels one to look at the particulars of a situation and to not map on kind of um, prejudgments on, on anything really, the school environment or the people in the school environment, 
um, but to really really look at the particulars of the situation. I think too, like when we're talking about the goal of education, Barb, that you put in, that you define, you say that it's the integrated ability to read the world, to read oneself, and then to figure out what the world is calling you to contribute. Um, and, and that's a little bit of what I was getting at earlier in terms of thinking about the life beyond the school. I mean, it's, if that's the goal of education, like when you say students want to educate, okay, first question that comes to mind, because I'm also an educational philosopher, is what do you mean by that? Like, what do we mean that they want to educate? Um, and that that seems to me, uh, it's, it's wonderful. I, I mean, I, I wish that we all understood that to be the way that it is. It's broad enough that it that it can encompass a lot of our goals, whether they're social goals or they're economic goals or they're personal goals, um, that we can cultivate this particular habit of mind. It's like what you say, Barbara, if we have this habit of mind, then we can at least judge when we get pulled up short whether or not our old habits work or we need something new, right? It's kind of a, a foundational or what I would call kind of like a a cardinal habit of mind, like something central that allows us to tackle things like social injustice. As I listened to the conversation after the fact, I found myself heartened by the resonances my four colleagues found in reading the book. Seamus and Ochezi seeing the definition of education I offered as broad enough to allow us to consider questions of social justice. Michal and Haley pushing hard on how these ideas become reality, part of the lived experience of educators and their students. But we hadn't talked about a claim that's at the heart of the book, about the relationship between ethics and education, and I didn't want to let go until I probed that follow up on that Seamus sure. with um with a like a, a question that I'd like us to talk a little bit about as a wrap-up that clearly my theory of education is a theory of ethical action I I don't think that's a I don't think that's a mystery in the book I try to make that very clear and that's a very Deweyan move you know that that ethics is education education is ethics and they're wrapped up in each other um but I said clearly, is it clear and is it justifiable? So I'd like each of you, all of you, to talk about that. Is this, did I manage that in the book? And even if I didn't, is it a is it a move worth making? Michal, you you do a lot with ethics. What do you think about that? Right. I completely agree. Like to me, it was very clear. And that's also where my questions came from. Mm. Basically. How do we solve the bad of the world? Uh, but this is this is what your book advocates that we need to teach people how to conduct themselves ethically and how to be citizens. And I think you could reframe your uh, responsibility as citizenship because to observe Which is what, what Seamus said earlier yeah and and are and and act together with 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 others yes uh and Seamus did mention that and it, I think it resonates with me with me very strongly that this is what what ethical action is about and this is what education is about they have the exact same goals uh and we should be focusing on that in schools more less about the content less about test scores less about the the future as specific tasks and jobs and skills to acquire, but rather this kind of disposition towards others and towards the world. 
that would solve a lot of problems, ethical problems as well. <laughs> I so agree with that. Totally agree with that. And um, I have several students who want to go into policy. And Barb, you know, if you were wondering, <laughs> does the book do that? Does the book, I guess, uh, attempt to take both human differences and equitable outcomes seriously? And yes, the answer to that is yes. That is exactly what it does. And um, uh, for policymakers, I think that would be very, very important to read and understand. Um, so I appreciate that portion of it. I, I would say I agree with um, both Kezi and Mikhail about that the ethical component is right there at the, at the forefront. And I think because it's so applicable, this concept of responsibility is so applicable to any concept or any um, text rather, um, I think it kind of underscores that, that sense that the ethics are right, right there. I did though, as I was reading, I had a question that kept coming to mind that wasn't necessarily my question about this, but it was a question, a critical question that I felt like young people would be asking of you or would be asking of this in that context, which, and might kind of do a, might reject the book altogether because of something that you said a few times, which was um, a critical pragmatist looks at everything, but not everything all at once. Um, and I think that the younger generation is asking for radical change, systemic change. They want to look at everything and they want to look at it all at once. And they don't want people in an ivory tower telling them not to. And so that's where I got a little bit stuck in terms of how does that, what role does this play? How do we speak to that argument for young people kind of banging at the door, demanding everything all at once um, when this approach says, otherwise? Well, that's a great question. And certainly we're seeing it in American politics right now. Um, and, and I do think it, I mean, I'm going to sound terrible, but I do think it's a, there's a certain development of wisdom that has to happen and can only happen over time. I am not being critical of young people for wanting everything all at once. Let me remind you that I graduated from high school in 1970 and college in 1974 and lived through the Vietnam War, protests, sex, drugs, rock and roll, the whole the whole bit. And and I often think now what we thought then about other people who said consider everything but not all at once. Um I I think I think Haley, I'm not going to convince 20 year olds or even 25 year olds. I think I might convince um, 30 year olds. I might convince people who have just had children. I might convince, yeah, the, who have lost parents. Um, because, and we need those people. See, that's the interesting thing about the world. We need people like me saying, okay, Here's one of the ways that we can look at this. But we need young people demanding, I want all of this at once. And by the way, I think our best bet on getting them into teaching and keeping them in teaching, because you know, all the all the literature says teachers last about five years, especially the smart ones. And then they take off. They take off because we are not giving them the room to think 
and grow and enact what they know needs to happen. And so I'm pretty sensitive to what, I'm not trying to convince them, but I am sensitive to what they want. I think they're right to want that. And the only way I know to, to give them that is to stay, as George Saunders says, so open it hurts. I mean, you just stay open to what's possible. And this was my answer to Michal, the, um, the, we won't do worse by letting teachers, by letting go of the surveillance and the control of educational systems. We won't do worse. Everything right now says test scores are down. And it's not because of COVID. It's because of what we have been doing in Europe with the league tables and no child left behind, all of these kinds of things we have been doing for decades. And it's showing and we are not actually educating children. So I, I think your question is a good one. I'm not under any illusions that everybody's going to think what I say is right. I, But I do think I honor what they are saying in the kind mm -hmm. of solution I offer. Seamus, I'm going to give you the last word because I've known you the longest. Anything you want to add to this before we wrap up? I was just saying that I, you know, the, well, I wasn't saying, I was thinking. I was saying it in my head among all the people that live there, um, that <laughs> all of my interlocutors that I've been internalized through the years, um, that it, it also seems to me like a, um, really a, a matter of, of what one's ethical outlook is. You know, I mean, as you know, Barbara, I, I'm, I'm more, more sympathetic to our virtue ethics. And I think I'm looking forward to talking about that a little bit more with you at PES, because I think that, you know, really as sympathetic as I am to doing and as much as I and I am to Aristotelian ethics, I think you and I are probably very close mm -hmm. um, in terms of how we think about ethical action. So I think your book does come out very clear. I mean, I was curious to see what other people thought, because obviously I have a background. And so when I'm reading a work like this, I can see things I'm not always sure other people see, you know, like little signal words and things. Um, but I was thinking, too, about the question of that that Haley was asking. And um, I, I see like with my students, when I teach ethics and moral education, a lot of them really are drawn to deontological ethics. They're really drawn to kind of a very clear rule-based system. And the other other kinds of ethical forms of thinking are a little too, I don't know, I'm probably putting words in their mouths, but the sense I get is it's a little too fuzzy and a little too unreliable. You know what I mean? It's like, you can't quite trust it, you know, because it isn't as clear as saying like, this is the right way and this is the wrong way. Um, and things get complex, they get ambiguous. And um, I think that through 12 years of schooling that they're given, and this goes back to just the whole conversation about developing responsibility in schools and how it could be a civic virtue is that, they they go through a system where they're told this is the right answer this is the wrong answer right and it's clear you 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 get 100 because you wrote the right answers you get 100 they're not really taught to develop with ambiguity and complexity and so when they're confronted with new ways of thinking about ethics these ways that demand ambiguity they demand complexity they demand particularity um it's uh, it's 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 uh I don't want to say it's uncomfortable, but it's novel enough that it makes you a little uneasy. You know, what is this? It's not very clear. Like, how do I know I'm doing the right thing? How do I know they're doing the right thing? Right. Um, so I don't know what the answer to that is, but I, I just I, I, I hope that in my teaching, when I have the young students come in, as Haley is saying, who 
who really are, you know, they see things very clearly and they want this kind of change and they know exactly what it is that is wrong and they want it. It's good to have that intuition, but we also, you know, I try to get them to just work as much as I can with some of the ambiguity and complexities of situations to warm them up to a little bit about thinking, thinking anew. Um, Cause it can be, you know, well, I, I don't want to talk anymore about that, <laughs> but, but I think like just, just in terms of a, whether or not your book hits it and just also in response to what Haley was saying, um, I'm not surprised that student, that younger people think that way. I think our schools make them think that way to a large degree. Some of it's perhaps developmental, but I think our schools aren't doing them any service by reinforcing very clear, um, very, very black and white thinking because of the how we teach them about the world, how we hand the, as you quote a rent, right? How we hand the world to them, you know? Um, we I don't think we're doing them any service. Hey, that was a lot. I said I could talk, just go on and on and on. I promised <laughs> you the last word. I'm not going to respond, but thank you all of you for doing this with me today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Barb. Thanks, thank you, Barb. Thanks, Barb. <laughs>I want to give a shout out to our production and editing team here at Chasing Bailey. Our editors are Brenna Fallon and Sam Deacon. Ruby Mundock handles promotional efforts. Our executive producer is Dr. Larry Woodall. I'm delighted to be working with this student faculty team at Millersville University to make Chasing Bailey an educational effort in every way. We are, all of us, teaching and learning all the time. And as usual, if you are a regular Chasing Bailey listener, please be sure to leave a review and spread the word among the educators, parents, and policymakers you know. If you are just tuning in, please subscribe to the podcast so that we'll know we're getting the word out. And if you have any questions or suggestions, we want to hear from you. Email us at chasingbaileypod at gmail.com. Together, we can spread the word that the path toward our best educational efforts and the best educational system we can craft runs through the attention we pay to educators.